please take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Lamentations. We're in Lamentations chapter 3 this morning. Uh, Lamentations 3, the third poem of the book, looking at verses 40 through 66. We will finish Lamentations 3 today, God willing. If you're using the the blue ESV Bible in the seat backs in front of you. You can find that on page 688, the very bottom of 688 on to 689. The title of our sermon is From the Depths, and the, wor- the key words for our worshipers in training are um, return, grief, and plea. In the preface... Um, rather, not the preface, it's on the, sorry, it's the back cover. On the back cover of uh, Thomas Watson's book, Repentance, you don't hear the back covers quoted often. I want to give them some love sometimes. Uh, you'll see these words on the back cover of the book uh, from the, uh, I think there's just the editor uh, from Banner of Truth. Wrote, he, says, he says this, A good case could be made out for believing that repentance is one of the least used words in the Christian church today. He says, In a world that will not tolerate the mention of sin, and in churches where it has been defined only in sociological terms, the biblical teaching on repentance has inevitably been ignored. Knowing what repentance is, and actually repenting, are essential to true Christianity. As much as we love the back covers of books, it wouldn't be fitting to quote the back cover without quoting the book itself. Watson writes this. He says, the two great graces of, uh, or the two great graces essential to a saint in this life are faith and repentance. These are the two wings by which he flies to heaven. Faith and repentance persevere, uh, or they preserve the spiritual life just as heat and radical moisture Preserve the natural. The grace which I'm going to discuss in the book, he says, is repentance. And then he says this. Repentance is never out of season. It is as frequently used as the artificer's tool or the soldier's weapon. We come this morning to this last section of this third poem. This third and central poem to the book, of lamentations and in repentance and faith with it shall prove to be the main topic of our discussion this morning. If you've not been with us uh, in the past uh, couple of months as we've been working our way through the book of lamentations, uh, it would be helpful to know that it was penned after Babylon's destruction of Jerusalem in 586 BC. And it's also helpful to know that, oh, so it's penned after that, and it's a, it's a lamentation, a lament about this destruction of Jerusalem, about God's city and God's people being destroyed. So that's why the book is written, and it's also helpful to know that this poem that we're looking at this morning, the, the last bit of it, the third poem, Lamentations 3, is central to the book. It's central positionally, structurally, and theologically. What I mean is that well, positionally, that's pretty straightforward. It's, it's central. It's the third poem. There's two before and two after. Um, this, is off, this is very important, often the Hebrew way of writing. The main point would often be in the middle of something, the middle of a sentence, the middle of a paragraph, the middle of a book, rather than at the end, as, as we often do, or maybe we put it at, at the beginning. 
But as we'll see in a few weeks, the, the end of this book is also very important. But centrally located is this third poem. But structurally, the poem is also central. We noted the first two poems uh, are written as an acrostic, meaning that each verse of the poems uh, follows the, the succeeding letters of the Hebrew alphabet, right? So in poems 1 and 2, it's verse 1 in English would be A, verse 2 would be B, verse 3 would be C, and on we go. And you'll notice that um, chapter 4 does this as well also uh, in, with 22 verses. Chapter 5 has 22 verses, but not there's no acrostic there. Um, the acrostic breakdowns, breaks down in, in chapter 5. But in Lamentations 3, when you look at it, there's not 22 verses like every other book. There's 66. And yet, Lamentations 3 isn't any longer than Lamentations 1 or 2. What happens is that the, the acrostic is heightened and sharpened in this third poem, where now each so there's 22 stanzas. Each has three lines. Each line now has, in Hebrew, is three lines, right? Each line begins with that letter. So it would be A, A, A. Verse two, or verses 1, 2, and 3. 4, 5, and 6 would be B, 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 right? So that's why you have 66. It's the, the English translator's attempt at capturing the uniqueness, the, the difference, the heightened poetic form of this third poem. And so our attention is drawn to this. Why this heightened across? Why are we being asked to consider this more uh, intentionally, more specifically? Well, it's because Lamentations 3 is built as building to a, a climax of sorts, which is demonstrated in that theologically, this is really the only place in the book, especially what we saw last week. A little, but we'll see... There's only, the only place of hope in the whole book is found here in Lamentations 3. There's, there's hints of it of, at other places in 4 and 5, but the, the clear, explicitly stated hope for the sufferer is found in Lamentations 3, namely what we looked at last week. But what we'll see this week is that that hope is still reverberating in his heart, in the poet's heart. Last week, we looked at that single message of hope. We looked at verses 19 through 39, where we, we saw the poet having lamented his suffering in 1 through 18. and 9 through 39, he fixes his heart on God's Word. Namely, it was Exodus 34, 6, about the Lord being faithful and merciful and communicating constantly His steadfast love, His covenant love, to his people. The poet fixes his heart on, on that truth and he commits himself to hope in God. He commits himself to this God who is good to those who wait for him, to this God who is full of compassion, to this God who loves justice and who is sovereign over all things. The poet concludes that middle section there in verse 30. Nine by asking a question, he says, should a man complain when he experiences the consequences of his sins? And it is this question that has seemed to prompt a response that we find in verses 40 through 66. So let me read these verses now. He says, let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. 
Let us lift up our hearts and hands to God in heaven. We have transgressed and rebelled, and you have not forgiven. You have wrapped yourself with anger and pursued us, killing without pity. You have wrapped yourself with the clouds so that no prayer can pass through. You have made us scum and garbage among the peoples. All our enemies open their mouths against us. Panic and pitfall have come upon us. Devastation and destruction. May my eyes flow with rivers of tears because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. My eyes will flow without ceasing, without respite, until the Lord from heaven looks down and sees. My eye causes me grief at the fate of all the daughters of my city. I've been hunted like a bird by those who were my enemies without cause. They flung me alive into the pit and cast stones on me. Water closed over my head. I said, I am lost. I called on your name, O Lord, from the depths of the pit. You heard my plea. Do not close your ear to my cry for help. You came near when I called on you. You said, do not fear. You have taken up my cause, O Lord. You have redeemed my life. You have seen the wrong done to me, O Lord. Judge my cause. You have seen all their vengeance, all their plots against me. You have heard their taunts, O Lord. All their plots against me. The lips and thoughts of my assailants are against me all the day long. Behold, they're sitting and they're rising. I am the object of their taunts. You will repay them, O Lord, according to the work of your hands. You will give them dullness of heart. Your, your curse will be on them. You will pursue them in anger and destroy them from under your heavens, O Lord. Well, I would like you to consider three things with me from these verses this morning. First, in verses 40 through 42, we will see the poet calls upon his audience, namely Jerusalem, but any who would read the book after, but primarily Jerusalem, he calls upon his audience to join him in repentance before the Lord. Second, in verses 43 through 54, we will see the poet lament yet again the destruction of his people. And in particular, he will lament the, the devastating effects of sin. And third, in verses 55 through 66, we will see the, the poet cry out to God for deliverance. So the call to repentance, the, the devastating effects of sin, and a cry for help. First, look with me in, the, in verses 40 through 42 where we see the poet in, in, uh, encourage and exhort Jerusalem to join him in repenting of their sins before the Lord. If, if complaining about punishment for sin is not an option, as the poet concludes in verse 39, repenting of that sin certainly is, and really it is the only option. It must be our response. He exhorts his audience to join him in testing and examining their ways and in returning to the Lord to whom they have long from whom they have long departed. He calls them here to lift their hearts, to lift their hands, to lift their voices to heaven. 
confessing that they stand unforgiven by God because of their rebellion against Him. Now he goes on to say that God has pursued them in anger. He shut out their prayer and refused to listen to them. He's made them to be disgusting in the sight of the eyes of the people. And here in these, these, these three verses, 40 through 42, this passage is helpful to us as we consider what repentance is. I want to, I want to ask that, what is repentance? These three verses don't tell us all that repentance is, all that the Bible has to say about repentance, but they, they give us a very, very good categories, very good um, you know, hooks to, to hang some thoughts on. One thing we see about repentance from this passage is that repentance is more than a merely personal and private matter. Sin always involves other people, or at least others. It involves God or it involves others. We're either sinning against others or we're dragging others into our sin. And even when we think our sins are quite private, they tend, we will see, uh, in our lives to to have very uh, real, even if subtle, effects on others. So we need to see up front here, as he calls upon the nation to repent, he doesn't just content himself to repent individually, but he calls on all. On the congregation, on the city itself, to repent. And perhaps this invites confusion. What I don't mean by emphasizing the corporate nature of the Christian life and therefore the a corporate nature of repentance and confession, I don't mean that every time you sin, you should have to stand in front of a group of people or in front of the whole entire church and confess your sins. What I mean is that it is needful for you, it is needful for me, for us to remember that we are one body here at Redeemer Baptist Church. We are one, as, as our mission statement says, one family of faith. And so we need each other, and we need to confess to one another when we sin against one another, and when we need help putting our sins to death. So there's a corporate nature to it, that we, when we sin, especially if you sin together, you repent together. But there's other aspects of repentance that we, we see here. It involves multiple components of our lives, according to these verses. First, it involves our minds. Right? Let us test. Let us examine our ways. Right? Set your mind and your thoughts. Think about your ways. Think about who you are. Think about what you're doing, what you've done. Test and examine to see if there is any wrongdoing in your life. But it also involves our, our wills. We must make the conscious effort to return to the Lord. You must choose to return to the Lord from your sin. It also involves our hearts. right? Our affections. Let us lift up our hearts. Let us raise our affections to God. Give them over to the Lord. And repentance also often involves our bodies. Let us lift our hands. 
Right? Repentance that is undemonstrated in your life. Repentance that is not noticeable in your life. Your physical, embodied life is almost surely no repentance at all. But it's not just what we think. It's not just what we feel. And it's not just what we choose, or what we will or want to do. Not just our hands that matter, but what our, what our words. What do we actually say in repentance? Look at verse 42. We have transgressed and rebelled. He, he acknowledges wrongdoing. He doesn't get specific here and name the, the wrongdoing. But he doesn't, he doesn't pull back. He doesn't minimize. Right? He doesn't say... What do we say uh, when we get angry, right? Well, I was, I was frustrated. I wasn't angry. I, th- I was frustrated. What's the difference? But in our, in our hearts, I think what we're doing is we're, we're minimizing. He doesn't do that. We have transgressed and rebelled. Transgression. Rebellion against the king? That is serious. He's not seeking to minimize. He doesn't, blame. he doesn't say, yeah, we transgressed and rebelled, but it was a really hard week, Lord. Owns it. So that's the call to repentance and a little bit about what repentance is. So it's a whole body, a whole life endeavor. And it matters what we say. But secondly here, he names the devastating effects of sin. He gives us further motivation. Why should, why should we repent? In verses 43 through 54, we, we see that the, and really the very end of 42 as well, he says the people's sin and their subsequent lack of repentance has led to unreconciled relationships. They're not reconciled to God. They're not reconciled to others. And they're not reconciled within themselves. Right First, with God, he says God hasn't forgiven them. Instead, God has pursued them in anger. He's killed them without pity. He's unwilling to hear, to listen to their prayers. We saw that in the very first part of the poem in, in um, verses 1 through 18. The Lord has shut out my prayer. What a dreadful state to live in. So let me ask you, is, is that an experience that's familiar to you? Do you know the feeling of being under the heavy hand of God because of unconfessed sin? Do you know the feeling of God refusing to listen to your prayers because of unconfessed sin? I think we tend to believe that that God is always listening, and certainly, in a sense, He is. But the Bible is, is clear in a few places that if, if I am living in complete contradiction to God's revealed will, to His law, then I should have no reasonable expectation that God is the slightest bit interested in listening to, much less answering my prayers. We see this in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, where the, 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 the husband who refuses and fails to live with his wife in an understanding way, right? He must, do, he must live with her in an understanding way. He must show honor to her. Why? So that his prayer life might not be hindered. So that God would 
listen to him. And so are you struggling with unanswered prayer in your life? Perhaps you should take a long, hard, inward look and consider whether it's not because of unconfessed sin. Now, it's it's obviously worth mentioning here that just because you either now or in the past or in the future experience something akin to unanswered prayer, that doesn't mean necessarily that it's because you are a sinner living an unrepentant life. It may be because the thing you're asking for is not what God has determined to be best for you. It may be because He's inviting you into deeper prayer and dependence on Him. He's not ignoring you, but He's inviting you to keep praying. But it does remain true that We ought to be willing to consider whether we aren't treasuring some sin or some sins over and above communion with God. So that's the first effect of sin, an unreconciled life with God. But second, here in 45 through in 46, we see sin leads to an unreconciled life with others. The poet says that God had made them scum and garbage among the peoples. Their enemies uh, spoke condemnation against them. Sin invites conflict with others. And here we see two aspects of this conflict. In verse 45, we see that it leads to a bad reputation among others. Sin in your life that goes on unrepentant will eventually, at some point, lead to others holding a low view of you. Now, as Spurgeon was apt to say, they don't know the half of it. But that's still bad, right? That unconfessed sin in my life would lead to poor reputation, my poor reputation in the world, because as a follower of Jesus, my reputation bound up in his. Consider the words we saw in Lamentations 2.15. Is this the city that was called the perfection of beauty, the joy of all the earth? The people of God should be Beauty should be excellence in the eyes of others. But because of unconfessed sin, we, be, we can become an eyesore and a stench. But it's not just bad reputations, but it's actual conflict. There were rumors and condemnations flying about and directed at Jerusalem, scoffing and hissing and mocking and taunting Our enemies open their mouths against us because of our sin. Their sin had led to a bad name and harsh words about them. Third, sin also leads to an unreconciled life with, like within your own heart. It, it just personal misery. Here the poet spends some time. He says, panic and pitfall, devastation and destruction have befallen us. These are our lots because of our sin. And then he makes it exceedingly personal. Right? He's talking corporately, but then he brings it in with first-person singular language. My eyes flow with rivers of tears. He has no respite from his weeping. 
What he sees happening to his people because of their sin has caused him great grief. He describes his turmoil in 51, or 50, uh, sorry, 2 through 54, uh, saying that he was hunted like a bird without cause, and he kind of dips back here into conflict with others. So they're all, they're all, they, they go together, even though we're sort of addressing them separately, but he, he's hunted like a bird, and he's, he's flung into a pit, and he concludes, right, what's his assessment of himself at the end of it? Where does this sin lead him? I am lost, he says. Unconfessed and unmortified sin will wreak havoc in your life, brothers and sisters. It will obliterate your relationships. It will strain and crack, it seems, your relationship with God. It will, it will ruin your, your, repu, your, uh, your, your, re, your relationship, there's the word, your relationship with yourself. Constant unease, dis-ease within yourself as your sin eats at you from the inside. That's what David says in Psalm 32. When I kept my mouth shut, I was like I was in the desert, just baking under the sun, dying. But when I confessed my sin, the Lord forgave the iniquity of my sin. The truth is, In the Lord's mercy, our sin catches up with us in this life often. Do you ever think about that? Ever been caught in a sin? It was embarrassing. It was miserable and, and uncomfortable. The truth is that was a mercy of God. It gave you an opportunity to repent. It gave you an opportunity to be reconciled with God, with others, and 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 within yourself. But for some, their fate is is to enjoy almost exclusively the pleasures of sin in this life. It is only in eternity that they will feel the pain of sin, the plight of sin. For what is hell but unrestrained, unrestrained enmity with God, others, and yourself? Jerusalem experienced a taste of hell on earth so that they might be brought to repentance and so that we might learn repentance. Because at times, the Lord invites us mercifully. He he mercifully grants us a similar experience of being caught up in the consequences of our sins. The question that lingers, therefore, is will we, like the poet, take God up on the offer? Here we're moved to our third point in 55 through 66, where the poet, being reminded of the devastating consequences of sin, eager to return to the Lord, he cries out for help. The Lord who was his enemy assailant, his attacker, in verses 1 through 18, through hope in the Lord and repentance from sin, has become his deliverer. Because here we see the poet's hope resurface. It's brief. It's a brief resurfacing of hope. But he's, he's hopeful that God shall indeed restore him and remove the consequences of his sin from him. Finding himself lost, he calls upon the Lord from the depths of the pit. And perhaps to his surprise... 
the Lord heard his plea. But she summarizes in verse 56. Don't close your ear to my cry for help. And then for the first time in the entire book, we hear from God. A direct quote from God. We've heard from God. It's God's word. But God explicitly speaks in the book. He, God is quoted here. And what, does, what is the quote? What's the, what's the first thing, the only thing directly that we hear from God in this whole entire book of lamentations and suffering and turmoil? It's three words in English. Do not fear. Do not fear, says the Sovereign Lord. You know, that's, uh, it's often said that do not fear is the most repeated command in all of Scripture. The Christian life is not a fearful one. Now, I know what you might say, what the poet might say to something like, are you kidding me? Don't fear, don't be afraid. I have so many reasons to be afraid, Pastor, you don't even know. And my response to that would be, you're right. You do. You have many reasons to be afraid in this world. And I don't know the half of them. But you have many, many, many more reasons not to be afraid. If you know the story of Elisha and his servant in 2 Kings 6, right? They're surrounded by the Syrian army. Because the king is really mad at Elisha because he's been giving his plans away to the king of Israel. And so finally, Syria has got Elisha surrounded. The servant wakes up one morning, he goes out, and he sees the, the, the mountainside covered with enemy troops. And he says, the jig is up, Elisha, we're done, we're done for. What does Elisha tell him? He says, don't fear. Why? Because those who are with us, who are for us, are greater than those who are against us. Elisha prays that God would open the man's eyes that he might see, and what happens? He sees surrounding the army, surrounding them, chariots and horses of fire from the Lord of hosts. God blinds the Syrian army, and then Elisha is able to lead them into the, the capital of Jerusalem, defenseless but then they spare their lives. God's Word speaks to us a word of comfort, a word of hope, a word of peace. Peace with God, peace with others, peace with ourselves. And he says, don't be afraid. And here in these last verses of this third poem, the, the poet acknowledges that God has heard. God has spoken. He has redeemed the man's life. He has seen the wrongs done to him. He has heard their taunts and their plots against him. I I love it. In verse 62, he says, Their lips uh, and thoughts of my assailants are against me all the day long. Well, what was it that had previously been against him all the day long? God's hand. Verse 3. Turns against me again and again the whole day long. Now in repentance, he sees. He sees that God is for him. He has been restored back to God, and he ends on a note of hope. God will repay his enemies. He will destroy them in anger. We began Lamentations 3 a couple weeks ago, and we said that God's anger and his wrath 
are the bookends of this poem. The man of affliction as is under the heavy weight of God's wrath and rod in the first couple of verses. And then in the last couple of verses, the last verse, verse 66, God pursues not the man. He's no longer pursuing the man. He's pursuing the man's enemies in anger and destroying them from under the heavens. The wrath and rod of God that were wielded and, and worked against Jerusalem because of their sins have been turned into a rod of deliverance. The, the rogue shepherd from the first verses of the, the poem now defends his sheep. And there's this great hope, and we've already, we already saw it back in Lamentations 1 where the Lady Zion herself has a brief moment of hope where she, she recalls on God's promise to destroy Babylon for what they uh, did to... to to Jerusalem. And here that, that hope resurfaces in, in full. God saw what Babylon did to Israel. And he hated it. Babylon was merciless. And they viciously attacked God's people. God's chosen people. And so the hope and the expectation is that God would bring the judgment of their crimes and their sins against them and, and, and crashed them down upon their heads, which he did. You can read about. In Daniel 5, for instance, where the king of Babylon at that time was Belshazzar. What happens? In Daniel 5, he's killed, and Darius the Mede receives his kingdom. And then by the time we get to Cyrus, king of Persia, Babylon is completely no more. And so what is the word for us? The takeaway for us here, it's that God's salvation is not always in the manner or the time frame that we might want, but it is sure. So I want to ask this question as we close. How is it, and we've, we've alluded to it already, but how is it that a person's relationship with God be changed from one of enmity to enjoyment? How do we move from being foe to friend? Well, the passage before us tells us that it is repentance. And, and we know, good Bible students that we are, that it's not. Repentance is never alone. What is it that always must attend repentance? And in fact, what is it always that must precede repentance, that gives birth to repentance? It is faith. Repentance and faith. Faith and repentance are, we often talk about them as two sides of the same coin. Repentance perhaps more accurately, is that it is the first fruit of faith. But they are inseparable. Faith is turning toward God in Jesus Christ. Repentance is turning away from sin. We turn to God and away from sin. They are, in some ways, one in the same act. You can't turn toward God without turning away from sin, vice versa. And so, what is faith? What does it mean to believe in Jesus? It, it means to, that we trust that He and He alone, His life, His death, His resurrection are necessary and sufficient to make us right with God. Right? You, you can't be good enough. You can't be sorry enough. You can't apologize enough. You, you must entrust yourself to Jesus Christ. 
believing that he has paid for your sins by his death. That he has granted you his righteousness by his life. And he will stand by you and with you and for you on the judgment day so that you may know then and now that you have obtained perfect peace with God. Do you believe that? Have you ever told anyone that you believe that? Children, let me talk to you for a minute. Children, do you believe this? That Jesus lived and died and rose again from the dead and He did it so that sinners like you, not just sinners like your parents, but sinners like you might be forgiven. If repentance is the first act of faith, do you know what the second is? Well, roundabout way, we would say it's a public identification with Christ through baptism and church membership. Christianity is not a private religion. It is personal, but it's not private. It's not just between you and Jesus. Your faith must bear fruit as He saves you into a covenant community of faith to help love you and to serve you and to serve with you and to hold you accountable to this life of faith and repentance as you submit to God. Jesus' authority as he works it out in the accountability structures of a church. And so if you're a young person here or a more seasoned one and you believe in Jesus but you haven't committed publicly to follow him through baptism, through the pursuit of church membership, ask yourself, well, why not? If you've got no good answer and if you believe in Jesus, I would assure you that you, you don't, then young person, tell your parents. Or if you're an adult, you can also tell your parents. But come and, come and talk to me. Come and talk to one of the elders. Tell us what God has done for you. Look to Jesus who loved you and gave himself for you. So that's Lamentations 3. So we'll see next week as we go on. Hope doesn't exist in a vacuum. But as we consider this hope we have in Christ, I pray that it would stir in all of our hearts a a deep and abiding zeal and love for the Lord Jesus Christ.